Hey, James, how's it going? Uh, going all right. How about yourself? Good, good. Staying warm in the Midwest here in April, hopefully. That's true. As Prince says, sometimes it snows in April. <laughs> as long as it's not like uh, black rain, right? I think you're okay. Yeah, if no purple rain, we're, we're, in, purple we're in rain. Shape. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I said black rain. Purple rain. Black rain's a movie. Lame movie, by the way. But so a lot of stuff going on with Apple in the last few weeks. So I'm sure you've caught up with all that, right? Oh, well, you know, as an Apple developer, I make a concerted effort to really not pay that much attention to uh, most of these keynotes. <laughs> if you chose to miss the one on the 25th, you chose absolutely the best keynote not to pay attention to because there was nothing, absolutely nothing for developers in that one. I think so. That's the buzz I got going into it. Like, it wasn't going to be that much of interest to developers. And even with like the big like product type announcements, you know, purely as a developer, even as someone thinking on product, product thinking, like the new devices aren't affecting the day to day things that developers do, um, products that are building. Ever since the Apple Watch, you know, even that was a big role. A lot of people are using it, but there aren't that many apps for the Apple Watch. Yeah. yeah. As somebody who's developed stuff for the Apple Watch too, the experience isn't particularly desirable uh, developing on the Apple Watch. There's been many projects I've started and many I've ended just because of the pain of having to develop an Xcode for the Apple Watch. But yeah, I mean, I didn't watch the event. I've been traveling the last three weeks to conferences and a vacation. So this didn't sound interesting to me. The one thing that people had buzzed about beforehand was the Apple TV Plus, because now Apple's going to start competing with Netflix and Disney and Hulu and all that and Amazon. But uh, I have enough TV to watch right now. All the cable cutters dropped out their cable subscription now have like eight new ones. Right. Is that how that works? Yeah. The strange thing is I hear people say like, oh, it's just going to be like cable again. I'm going to pay the same amount. And I'm like, well, I don't watch that much TV. I mean, I watch some TV, but like, I don't feel like I need to pay $120 for 10 subscriptions. Like, One or two subscriptions are enough for me, and that covers what I want to watch. So I have other things to keep me busy besides catching up with Stranger Things or whatever people are watching right now. That's coming. You get till July for Stranger Things. No, I've, I've got Netflix, and we get Prime thrown in. And the other ones, like they'll have one or two shows I might want to watch, but not enough to pay for the subscription. So I'm kind of I'm laying off most of them. But I do enjoy Netflix and Stranger Things. Yeah, Netflix, and they've done a good job transitioning from distributing other people's content to producing or paying for their own. And I think that's put them in a good position. So, yeah, I don't know how Apple's going to fit into that. They certainly are trying to like. As I've been talking about in this podcast, they're definitely trying to pivot to the service services area. So we'll see how some of the stuff goes. The only thing, as far as a developer that might be of interest, is the new iMacs just got bumped specs. And I love my iMac. It's probably one of my favorite Apple devices, and I might upgrade in the next year or two. But it's just a spec bump. It wasn't like a redesign anyways. Yeah, very cool. And meanwhile, I'm rocking my 2013 MacBook Pro because the new ones are just not up to it. So that's what I'm waiting for this year. Yeah, same here. As much as they have like all these new processors and touch bar, like I do like a good keyboard too. So I don't want to have to worry about that <laughs> when I buy a new laptop. Yeah, the new MacBook Pros, I really enjoy the keyboard. Typing on it, it's great, but half of them just don't work. Right, exactly. Exactly. 
James, you want to tell a little bit about yourself and what you do and what's your experience working with other companies? Sure. So I'm an independent consultant, and for the past eight years or so, I've been working in the Apple space. So I do iPhone apps, iPad apps, primarily as a consultant, but I'm also working on side projects trying to build a company. But mostly what I'm talking about today is working with outside developers. I'm also part-time, not so so much part-time, but like a freelance CTO. So I help companies make smart technology decisions. So a lot of founders, they might know the industry they're in, they don't know the first thing about how to how to hire software developers. And that's one of the main things that you can screw up if you're trying to start a business is to mess up the software. And if your software is not on, then your, your company's dead in the water. So I help companies navigate all that, especially companies that you know, don't have the budget for a CTO and a handful of developers. There's a lot of companies beneath that that still you know, have software that runs their company and need to make smart decisions about it. So what are some of the issues that you see companies run into when they are working with like external developers? The first thing everyone wants is like, oh, we got, we got to find an employee. We want someone that's going to come to our office, sit down, work day to day. And that's okay. If you've got a certain budget, employees are great. You know, they're focusing on your problems day in, day out. They're on your beck and call. Another benefit of having someone doing continuous work for you is they start to absorb all the domain knowledge that you have. You might be in the restaurant industry. You might be in the manufacturing industry. You might be selling to medical sales people. The more they're sitting, sitting with you and working through your problems, they're absorbing that domain knowledge, and that makes them more effective as developers. But a lot of, you know, a solid senior developer, that's six figures easily in most markets these days. So that's beyond the budget for a lot of people that are just still trying to validate an idea or very early stage of revenue generation. So what do people do? Well, we look outside and we look for consultants, dev shops. We go to some of the you know, the websites that uh, help to find uh, engineering talent, which has its own set of difficulties. You know, how do you know this person's going to do good work? If you hire a random person from you know across the world, they're getting twenty bucks an hour. Are they good? Are they committed to your project? At the other end of the spectrum, you could spend a quarter of a million, half a million with a big uh, boutique dev shop. And a lot of people spend that much and don't get what they want, and they spend way too much money. So there, there's a lot of pitfalls that people can get when hiring external developers. That's one of the big things I've noticed is how scared, and rightfully so, companies have when they try to find developers. And they don't know what to look for. They don't know how to verify that they're finding the right person. And that seems to be like one of the big challenges that companies face. I agree. I think you know a business is built on three legs. One, you need to understand the industry that you're trying to make money from. Two, you need to you need to be able to know how to sell things. And that's a totally different skill. Three, you need to understand like how to build the product you're gonna sell. And if either one of those things is not there, like your company's just gonna fall over. Yeah. And then on top of it, what do you recommend as some of the ways that companies can know how they're hiring the right person or picking the right external developer? Sure. I think first off, we should talk about different classifications of ways that we can think about people doing the work. It's tough to to judge software, especially early on the project, and definitely if you're not someone who's been in the software business for a while, um, because 
the first three months of a project look about the same, whether you're doing it right or you're doing it kind of half-assed. So it's difficult. You've got kind of flying blind for a little bit because the problems don't show up until three to six months within the project. At that point, you've sunk a lot of money in. And I hear all the time from people that want to hire me, they're like, yeah, we're 90% done. And you look at the project and it's a complete nightmare. And they pretty much have to scrap it because they went with the cheapest option they, they could find. And they couldn't tell the problems until they were already deep in. And the other firm or the developer, um, they couldn't complete what they're trying to do. Yeah, I've definitely seen that before. I think there's almost like a miscommunication between what completion is and what completion actually means and then whether the quality is good enough that it can be built on top of. Definitely. So what are some differences between just like hiring an employee versus hiring a consultant? Sure. Or like an external contractor or freelancer. I feel like some of those terms are a little bit interchangeable, but maybe you have a particular use of those terms. Yeah, freelancer, consultant, contractor, dev shop, they can all be used somewhat interchangeably. Right. There is somewhat some difference based on the mindset of the person using that. Do you see as like a consultant as somebody who comes on temporarily and advises a team? That's kind of what I've gathered is the opinion of most people as far as what a consultant is. Or what do you see as the difference between a consultant and I think freelancer and contractor is pretty synonymous, but like consultant is technically, or not technically, but is usually thought of as something a little bit more senior. Um, definitely. No, I think the idea of, I call myself a consultant, and the reason I do is because I'm helping you to provide a solution. I'm also doing the implementation frequently, but it's more than just me sitting in a chair writing code, which if you're a contractor, that's typically what you're end up doing. Don't provide any input. Using a consultant in the software industry is a little bit weird because if you talk to any other industry, any other industry, the consultant is just providing advice, not doing any implementation. But in software, a lot of times the consultant is also doing implementation. That's kind of work with how we talk about things in this industry. I think that makes total sense. So how would you decide between getting just hiring a new full-time employee versus getting a consultant or getting a, just a contractor? So if you have the budget for a, a developer, you go ahead and hire a developer. Um, but you also need some way of determining if they're doing the right thing. Uh, typically that means like a lead developer or a CTO. And, but that could be half a million dollars easily. So there's a way you can bring on higher-end talent, at, which lowers the risk of your project failing. Um, you do that with a consultant, someone who is used to seeing different software, seeing a lot of different code bases, a lot of different companies. And they can use that experience and help out yours. Now, uh, on a poor hour per day, per week basis, consultants can be more expensive than an employee. But if you just need to crack out uh, MVP or a couple of features over a couple of weeks, a month or two, over time, your cost can be a lot less. And you also have access to higher level talent than you could probably hire. A lot of people that make a living as consultants, if you're going to try and hire them, it would be very hard. You talk about top of the salary, salary range, which for a small company probably doesn't work. But as a consultant, they're a lot more flexible with the type of clients they can work with. So you can get higher end vision and experience for overall less cost. So if you've seen this trend, especially amongst like iOS 
shops or iOS projects where they hire folks who are mobile developers versus hiring somebody who's specific in iOS? Um, yeah, I, I've seen that. What are some challenges with like hiring a separate iOS developer and a separate Android developer versus hiring a just general, quote-unquote, mobile developer? Right. The pipe dream is that, hey, we need a developer. We've got an iOS app. We've got an Android app. We want them to work on both things. One benefit of that is that domain knowledge stays the same. You don't have to do any communication between teams. Um, it lowers the overall overhead of managing a project like that. If you have separate people or separate teams working on different platforms, there's communication overhead, even with very experienced people. There's always communication that you have to make sure everyone's on the right page and you're working on the right features and both platforms work the same way. Because iOS and Android are completely different. They've got their different platforms, their different devices, their different languages. The frameworks are all completely different. And for the most part, the iOS and Android developers don't talk to each other all that much. So the patterns are very different. So ramping up a junior developer on both platforms can be difficult. But I have seen, you know, once a person has a good knowledge of mobile development and the patterns, I think they can pick up the other platform and do reasonably quality work. That's something I see a lot. A lot of dev shops have people that do both, and they, they're doing fine. So it's, it's definitely possible to have someone that does both, but typically you're going to bring a person that does one very well and let them do the other part you know, adequately. Yeah, I think it's like really hard to find. And when I say mobile developer, I mean native mobile developer, because obviously you could go with like a React native person who might be able to develop both, for instance. But I think like I found it there if you're building a very basic app that's kind of where you're not using like a specialty API, for instance, that's like dependent on the hardware, you're probably okay if you can find a really good developer who can do both. And it's just a matter of having a really good UI or UX person to kind of know the, inc- the intricacies of Android versus iOS and the different patterns, so to speak. But I think you probably could get away with it sometimes. But you just, like you said, you have to find somebody who has that like real strong experience in both those OSs. Yeah, definitely. Like just just understanding client development, I think, is the core skill. Right. And a lot of people were doing web work. Right. So it, it's a different world when you're doing native native development. So what are some ways that like a CTO or a lead developer can know that they've found a good developer? Like portfolio, I guess, references. What else would you think? So when I you know vet external shops or developers, the first thing I look for is a referral. You know, someone I know who's worked with in the past. Have they done what could work? Were they easy to work with? Did the project go as we expected? Uh, if something didn't go as expected, how was that handled? Because that's huge. Because anyone can be fine when the project goes smoothly. It's it's like when something hits a snag, what happens then? And that happens like 80% of the time. Yeah, definitely. And that, I mean, knowing how someone handles projects that's starting to fail is a lot more useful than projects that went well. You know, How do they handle it? Do they divert blame or they jump in and like, okay, this is going off rails. How do we handle this? Or they do they help get things back on track? So that's one uh, good thing. You know, talk to our referrals. It's like a lot of times you don't know. You know you've tapped out your network. 
portfolio is good. Look at the website. If they have apps they've worked on, download them. See how they work. See how the usability is. Do they have any obvious problems? And when you're dealing with a portfolio, make sure to ask what was their role on the project. You know, did they do it start to beginning? Did they work with a designer? Did they work just one small part and are taking credit for the whole thing? Were they did they get a lead role? That's important. So you want to know that they've done this type of thing before if you're gonna pay high end prices. You know, that works for dev shops and solo developers. Um, but a lot of times you're stuck with reaching out to dev shops. And I live in Minneapolis. You know, we've got a lot of good dev shops in the area. They all charge about the same per hour. And all the mid kind of top 10-ish tech industry, tech cities, they're all about the same. So you can really move your project forward by picking the right people, you know, and, and any of the dev shops can hire salespeople that are pounding the pavement, trying to find people to hire. And that's how almost all of them grow. So you get into a situation where they've got a great website and they've got a good salesperson, so they have all this work. Um, but who is doing the work? Even if one of the, the dev shops they've got, you can Google what their developers are doing. Are their developers speaking at meetups, stuff like that? That's, all, that's great. That's a great sign that you're working with a, a reputable agency. But even if you work with a boutique dev shop who you know, charges high-end prices, they got the developers out at meetups, speaking, at conferences, like you don't actually know that they are the people that are going to be doing the work. And as I think anyone that spends enough time in the software industry knows, like the hardest thing to get is people to do the work, the software developers. And everyone knows it. So it's hard to hire. So you might have a couple aces on your team, but the rest of the team might not be uh, up to par. So it's important when you're, even if you're talking to a high-end company, it's like, who's actually doing the work? What work have they done? That's important. What do you think is such a challenge to get somebody to do the work? Like, what are some of the pitfalls that people run into? When you say trying to find somebody to do the work, is it like just trying to find the person, the search, or is it getting the wrong person who just doesn't do the work? Based on your budget, how comfortable you are with managing the project, you're probably going to get more cost-effective value working with a solo developer, someone with low overhead. They're not spending a lot of money on fancy office space, you know, with a $10,000 espresso machine, that type of thing. <laughs> all, all the things that you need to get to try and hire good developers. Uh, there are a lot of people out there working on their own, and they can provide a lot better value than a lot of these big companies with a lot of salespeople and tons of overhead. One of the things that I try to tell clients is like the flexibility you get with hiring someone like us, for instance, who are more or less on our own is just like you get all this flexibility as opposed to like ending up hiring some company that doesn't know what they're talking about, but just has really good sales pipeline, so to speak, or a sales process. But you end up like stuck with somebody that isn't very agile and you might end up being way on the bottom of the list as far as priorities because they have way too many projects to work on. And that could always be a problem. Definitely. I've run into entrepreneurs that have dropped a quarter of a million dollars on apps uh, with companies like this. Great sales team, you know, their leadership, well-connected in the the community. But, you know, this this person's uh, app was low on the priority and the quality has actually delivered not that great. Yeah, yeah. So even with a company that has a good reputation 
around town, you can have problems. Now, what if you just don't simply have the budget for like a quote unquote really good developer and you go with like a cheaper developer or cheaper alternative? What are some problems with just going that route instead? Well, they don't always have to be problems. I've hired people offshore for in, insanely cheap costs. I I wanted to redo my band's website. We had an old, old design from the early 2000s. We wanted to make it just mobile-friendly, just a little bit more responsive. I hired someone off, uh, I can't even remember what the company is because they've changed their name so much, the big one everyone uses. Is it Fiverr, Upwork? Upwork. Upwork, okay, gotcha. They call, it's called something else now, right? Or they probably remember. are. I, I'll fix it in the notes. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. It might have been whatever was previous Upwork, but I hired someone. Okay. And he delivered something, and it was pretty good. I had a couple changes, and it was fine. So I was able to get good quality work out of him. We shipped it. The website got updated, and we were good. In between that, though, I asked for some functionality, and he like changed the requirements. Like It was a purely HTML website, and he started throwing up like PHP sites. Oh, PHP weird. pages. I was like, what, what, what are you doing? No, that's not how we do it. This has to be on HTML. And What was his logic? Um, just some dynamic logic that made it easy, a little bit easier for him. Oh, so he did it server-side as opposed to doing it client-side, more or less. Right. Okay. You know, but that's something I noticed right away because I'm a technical person and like, hey, do it this way, and he did it, and it was fine. Um, we smoothed it over. Someone else gets it, they check it, the page works as expected, and they move on when there's been significant changes in the architecture. And that's the type of thing that you could easily overlook. So that can cause problems Okay. down the road. Yeah, I feel like with a web page, it's a lot easier to get away with like hiring somebody cheaper. I could see that being more of an issue with an iOS app, um, especially if you're like something that's going to be much more long-term and is it a simple fix. Or maybe that's not the right way to put it. If it's a green project, I would almost wouldn't want to hire somebody cheaper because you're starting your architecture and you're starting your setup with somebody with more experience. Whereas if it's like a simple fix, you could always just hire out a cheaper developer in that case. Would you agree or disagree? I think it depends on where your company is. Okay. If you're just trying to validate your idea, like get something out there yes. as cheaply as possible. Yes. And you know, a lot of these offshore companies, I've, I've seen their code, I've inherited their code bases. A lot of the patterns they use are are not going to scale to an enterprise okay. class iOS app, but it's fine for you know just a basic a basic app. So like near term, I think it can be a, a decent play, but it's going to get to a point where you can't add the features you want. You can't add like analytics or the di- different stuff that you want to do. You can't scale to a larger team because of how it was it was developed. And most of these offshore companies use similar patterns that are fine for six months or so, and then just fall apart. Yeah. But if you're just trying to validate your idea, you know, just validate the idea. On the other hand, if you've validated the idea, you've got money coming in, and you get people relying on this, you're trying to build a company around it, then you want to you make sure you're building the, the foundations correctly. So like you're going to have an app that you're still going to be able to add functionality to in six months, in a year, in four years. I think that makes total sense. That makes total sense. It's about that like long-term foundation. Uh, it's going to be much more important 
than a handyman you might hire out to fix a doorknob, for instance. Is that right. is that analogy good? I think so. Okay, cool. If you're just trying to sell a door, you know, get something together and see if it works. If you know it works and people love it and you want to scale to selling a bunch of doors, then you need to make sure you're you're doing it right. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So my last question for you is and I'm talking from CTOs or lead developers perspective. Let's say you brought a developer on to your company. What are some gotchas or things to watch out for or like just to make sure that the project is moving ahead in a healthy way? One of the challenges working with uh, external developers that you're not seeing them on a day-to-day basis. They may check in every day. They might check in a couple times a week. You might get an email. You know, 3 a.m. on a Friday every once in a while. Um, you don't know. So one thing you have to do if you're managing these projects is to just make sure the communication is open and make sure that the developer knows the correct priority of what he's supposed to be working on. And if there's any ambiguity or any questions, that they know the right way to, they know how to get them resolved. So it's important to keep that uh, communication open. You know, as for me, I've been, you know, this developer for a long, long time. I've been independent for 10 years so I, I know how to keep on top of things. I know if like I have a question about this, I know how to get it resolved. I can send an email, or I can I can figure it out. Um, a more junior developer may not know the right questions to ask, may not know, know how to initiate the conversation. So, you know, as a CTO or the person hiring this developer, like you need to be more proactive about making sure the communication lines are open. I think that's one of the main things that can cause problems with the project. I think more common than not that we're dealing with remote teams. And I, I don't know if that's what you're trying to get at, but like that's definitely the case is that majority of times you're you're dealing with a remote team of some sort. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool, James. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I think I'm good. I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the projects of writing I've been doing. So my company is Sharp Five Software. That's Sharp F I V E software. And I've got a series of blog posts I did two or three years ago covering a lot of these topics. So you can go there, sharp5software.com slash blog, working with external developers. So if you want to read more on this, you can go there. More recently, I've been doing writing on my own blog, a personal blog, James Zuber, J-A-I-M-Z-U-B-E-R.com. And this is more advice for consultants. So if you're thinking about getting into consulting, you're an employee, Advice for that and networking, just dying all stuff I've learned over the years of you know working for myself. So those are some projects I've been doing, and your I think your listeners may be interested in it. That's very cool, James. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this topic. I know it's of interest to me, and I think it's of interest to our audience for sure. So uh, maybe we'll have you on again some other time. That sounds great. Cool. Talk to you later. All right. See ya.